the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to The Firing Line with Philip Naiman. The Firing Line radio show is brought to you by Bullseye Sports in Riverside, CCW Safe, Cutting Edge Bullets, Vortex Optics, Vortex, The Force of Optics, and by Philip Naiman and Cornerstone Christian Wealth Management. And now your host, Philip Naiman. Good. Bad. I'm the guy with the gun. Hello, folks. Welcome to another edition of Firing Line Radio Show. This is Philip Naiman. Hope you're having a great day out here in Southern California. And, as promised, we actually have a fantastic guest this week. It's not just me on the air. So this is this is your treat for what we have coming up here. I have Mike Glover. Folks, if you don't know who Mike Glover is, you've not been paying attention to uh, being prepared. Mindset equipment, all that other stuff. Mike runs Fieldcraft Survival, fieldcraftsurvival.com. They do some training. They've got products. He's got great information. He's got a world of experience, and that's what we're going to ask him to share with us here today. So welcome, Mike Glover, to the show. Mike, how are you doing? Doing well. Thanks for having me on. Well, thank you. He's calling in from Heber, uh, Utah, folks. So you got a little bit of snow on the ground, I imagine, up there. Beautiful country, by the way. Yeah, it is. We just got a, a light dusting last night, but it's um, it's about 30, 40 degrees. Beautiful country right above Salt Lake City to the east. So we love it here. Yeah, I, mean, I drive through it every time I go to Laramie to go hunting. So it's a nice place. So um, you have a very interesting background. You know, um, I'll, I'll obviously let you tell it, but you've always wanted to be a soldier. You became a great soldier. So why don't we pick it up from there about kind of a little quick five minutes about uh, your background and and how it got you to where you are today. Yeah, I joined the Army um, right out of high school, actually uh, dropped out a little bit so I, I could start the military process early. So I actually left high school a year early and did a whole bunch of summer classes so I can get in the military. Uh, joined the infantry when I was 17, did four years in the infantry and um, back then, the, I think the motto was like, be all you could be. And so there was this idea that you had a whole bunch of options and I, I signed up for everything they threw at me. Um, went to airborne school, went to ranger school, um, even spent some time at my first duty station, the third infantry regiment as a, a guard at the tomb of the unknowns. And this is pre pre nine 11. So nothing was really going on in the, in the military. Uh, we were doing a whole bunch of GRTC training rotations, fighting mock wars that was uh, really dated based off of Cold War tactics still. Um, 9-11 happened, obviously, and it changed the world, uh, changed my career for the better. I decided to um, go to Special Forces Selection, which I did right after 9-11, and then spent really – all the way until 2016, the rest of my career in special operations. Um, did did a lot of stuff, went to war a whole bunch of times, 
uh, was an 18 Bravo, a special forces weapons specialist. And then, um, went, went to a whole bunch of schools, was a sniper, a joint terminal air controller at JTAC, uh, was a sniper reconnaissance team sergeant, um, you know, free fall jump master, a whole bunch of stuff. And then worked my ra- my, my way up to the rank of Sergeant major. Um, my last position was an operations sergeant major for a, a special operations detachment that covered down on counter counterterrorism in, in Africa. Uh, got out, got out of the military and decided to contract for a couple of years. I contracted with the CIA for uh, two and a half years and deployed uh, another half a dozen times all over the world. And then started at some point um, in 2015, my company, which I run and operate now called Phil Craft Survival. You know, thank you for your service. It's not just service. You've got an exemplary career and, uh, Thank you, man, for uh, doing everything that you do. So that's, again, just, oh, thank you. That means a lot. Yeah. No, it means more to us. You know, we uh, thank you is a simple thing compared to the 15 years you put out there in the field. So absolutely awesome. Um, you came back and, you know, doing some research on you, you, you came back to the States. And one of the things you always loved doing was just getting out in the field. And you, you realized that there was a gap there between all the different schools you'd been to, right? And what's available for Joe Schmoes like me. So tell us a little bit about that evolution. Yeah, I, you know, a lot of people um, kind of see military training as something that we do uh, on our own accord within the units. Like, you know, you see army guys running through the wood line training on small unit tactics. And, you know, you see guys jump out of airplanes. Um, but in special operations, we use civilians mainly actually to train us in specialized skills, whether that's, you know, the integration of technology on the battlefield or specialized, you know, shooters and pistol and carbine who shoot better than anybody else in the world. So we, we often bring them in similar to how a business would bring in a consultant, right? A subject matter expert who is offering advice, guidance, and training uh, consultation to make you better. So what I realized in civilian life is there's not a, a conduit for experience, one place that's offering up subject matter experts in the areas of, of preparedness. So whether that's, you know, tactical training, first aid, even mindset, there's not like an institution or an organization that's doing that. Um, so I decided I wanted to be not the subject matter expert because I'm not an expert at any specific thing. Um, I would consider myself more of a jack of all trades, but I, I am definitely a facilitator of finding the best in their practice and then giving a civilian who wouldn't have the opportunity, the opportunity to train with the best in the world. You know, I think that's our specialty. And I think that's what makes us different from everybody else in the pack. Yeah. I think that's very well said because, well, you just talk about the different schools you went to in the military, right? You know, you've got the sniper school, you've got your armor school and everything else that you've done out there to be the best, to be the best precision shooter, you know, you are only focusing on precision shooting. You know, to, to be the best driver, you're only driving. Uh, to be the best skeet shooter, like we have Kim Rode out here, the gold medalist, um, she does that. 
Now, can she shoot other things? Yes. Can she shoot other things with that level of proficiency? No, because that's her sole focus. So to find the people who are absolutely skilled at what they do, to bring that gift or or the, the level of proficiency that they've developed and bring it in and teach it, I think is, is an awesome way to go. So when it comes to shooting, because that's what we're about here, Second Amendment, what is your particular favorite type? You know, I... I grew up as, um, you know, a, a special forces weapons guy. And part of that training curriculum was learning all foreign and domestic weapon systems, you know, from nomenclature to assembly, disassembly, common malfunctions. Um, I, I, I like pistols, carbines, historical weapon systems, but when I became a sniper and started understanding how much of an art form it was, that's where I, I found my first love in guns, which was, um, you know, laying flat on my belly and, and kind of developing this relationship with understanding how the rifle operated. I mean, when I went to cyber school, we we weren't using kestrels and, you know, a, a device to measure the weather and calculate your data. We were doing it in the weather, in the conditions um, and then building that data in the written form and trying to replicate that in combat or whatever our circumstance was in. And so that whole relationship of reading trays, calling wins, understanding, uh, in this case, mill radians and everything related to ballistics, external ballistics in this case, uh, was fascinating to me because I have a pretty analytical mind and it's my favorite type of shooting um, by far. Yeah, I agree with that. I mean, especially when you, like you said, you start to understand the relationship of what's actually happening. It's not just you're out there, you know, you've bought a, you bought a new scope and a new rifle and now you can shoot 10,000 yards. It just doesn't happen like that. But to understand the science behind it and have an appreciation for what can be done when you spend, as you said, enough time flat on your belly, <laughs> enough time flat on your belly behind the, behind the glass and, and uh, sending bullets down range. So, you know, again, Thank you for your service on that. Um, that happens to be my favorite type of shooting, too, is long-range precision. You know, not F-class or anything like that, but I, I do a fair amount of hunting, and we actually kill a lot of rocks out here in the desert. We make big rocks into small rocks and smaller rocks into smaller rocks yet. It's one of the fun things about having some open uh, open land out here. So we do get to head out and, and uh, do that. Matter of fact, last weekend, just a little aside, I... I'm training for a, a hunt in Alaska. So I hiked up this mountain three and a half miles in, carrying a big old pack, planning to go to the end of this ridge line and shoot this this over this giant canyon. I get up there and there's like this pita gal camped right on my shooting spot. It just there's so much open land. She had to pick that one spot. It was unbelievable that uh, you know, <laughs> seven mile round trip hike with fifty five pounds on my back and I didn't get to fire a shot. So anyway, that's what happens out here in Southern California too. But anyway, we're going to pick this up right again. Fieldcraft Survival is a website for Mike Glover, fieldcraftsurvival.com. We'll be right back after this. AM 590, the answer. This portion of the firing line is brought to you by Bullseye Sports in Riverside. All right, you primitive screwheads, listen up. See this? This is my boomstick. Hey, folks, every week, you know, we're talking about the Second Amendment, your rights, hunting, shooting, all the fun stuff involved. And this week, we have a special guest on that we're talking about also with Mike Glover from Fieldcraft Survival. 
Now, you also know that the main support of this show is Vince Torres, Bullseye Sports Guns and Ammos in Riverside. Head on down to Vince Torres Place, BullseyeSports.com on Barlington. Whoops. Oh my gosh, Brockton and Arlington. Brockton and Arlington. He's only been there for 100 years. Brockton and Arlington and Riverside. Check him out. Tell him that uh, we sent you down there and everything should be about 50% off. Um, yeah, just say that we told you. It's it's fine. He can go ahead and give you the discount. Um, joining me back here, folks, I have Mike Lover. Mike Lover, FieldcraftSurvival.com. Um, one of the great things that I think you've put out for free, Mike, um, on your on your website and some of the podcasts is kind of the mindset you know, you have you have the three pillars of preparedness. And I really wanted to go into that because here in Southern California, we have so many people on top of each other. Now, I actually live out a ways from most people. We've got 13 million people, though, packed into a super tight area. People aren't prepared for 20 minutes, let alone 20 days. And, you know, maybe living out there in Utah, things are a little bit more, you have to be more self-reliant uh, because there just isn't. Uh, grocery store on every corner. So tell us a little bit about preparedness, what that means to you and, and uh, some tactics for that. Yeah, I think, I think preparedness, um, a lot of people think it's always how you react or respond um, defensively in the worst case scenario. And I think preparedness um, isn't that it's, it's psychological, it's physical, it's tangible. It has everything to do with uh, your lifestyle and how you live because we live in a world where, you know, human beings by default are, are just very good at being efficient in everything that we, that we do. I mean, you can see it on a flat range when I, when I teach a new shooter and I, you know, I, I walk them through a couple of movements and they become faster and faster because we're always looking for the shortcut. Well, technology and the integration of it in our lives is that shortcut. And so a, a lot of the things that we depend on today have kind of displaced us from the understanding of how to be physically prepared and mentally prepared in a tangible world, like a real world that could really hurt you. And, you know, this is, a, this is a primal, like an ancestral understanding, but we're just further removed from that truth more so than ever. And that's okay. But understanding that preparedness is as calculated and um, as important as tying your shoes or wearing the right shoes or, you know, talking to your children about uh, thinking through circumstances or conditioning and training your family and tactics and first aid. It's, it's all those things. Um, and you had mentioned mindset. And that's, that's one thing I think that we offer that is different because we're actually giving tangible solutions and mindset mindset in preparedness means resilience. It means your ability uh, to physically and mentally come back from adversity. Like what happens when you get punched in the face, literally, or maybe even, even figuratively, what happens? Um, to build that resilience takes tactics. It takes literal things you have to do in your routine, in your habits. And uh, I, I broke it down into pillars of preparedness because it can get, it can get, overwhelming for people who are new to this idea. Um, one of the pillars of preparedness is what you carry on your person every single day. That doesn't have to be just the pistol that you carry appendix carry in your waistband. I'm, I'm talking about first aid. I'm talking about a cell phone. I'm talking about maybe even a ham radio uh, for alternate communications. 
we also focus on mobility as a second pillar because it's an extension of your capability, not only in space, but that space could be leveraged for capability. So if you have more room in your trunk because it's empty right now, well, there's things that you could put in into it that are going to facilitate your survival or being better prepared. Uh, not only that, I mean, your vehicle is your lifeline, especially in America, because we depend on it to logistically support us. Um, but we also depend on it in security as well. But we're adhered to roads, you know, byways and highways. Um, but we're not thinking outside the box. I mean, a, a two inch ice storm in Georgia can shut down traffic and people and gridlock for days. Uh, so what could happen in the worst case version of that? And then finally, uh, we have this term in a the third pillar called homestead. Uh, I grew up in a world in special operations where safe homes or safe houses we used as places to resupply, refit, reorganize, and defend ourselves. Your home is that. Even if you live in an apartment in San Francisco, you have a bed down location that affords the ability for you to upgrade your circumstance. What I tell people is if they have a tourniquet on their person, they need to have an aid bag in their car and they need to look at their apartment or their home as a hospital, meaning you need to be able to sustain yourself for longer durations of surviving. So, you know, these pillars of preparedness are based in uh, a foundation that is your community. You have to have a social network to survive. The idea of you getting off grid and living by yourself, that's fascinating and, and, and romantic, but it's likely not going to lead to really good outcomes in surviving the worst case. And finally, the uh, umbrella of that is what we described is mindset. I mean, I, the overarching uh, resilience that's going to protect you from all of these things is having that right mindset to overcome um, physically using your mind uh, and using your right decision-making processes, which lends itself to a healthy mindset. Th thank you for that. And those are all important, obviously. Um, and we need to think about them here in Southern California. You know, again, here in Hebrew, Utah, things are a little bit more wide open. Um, well, all of Utah, you're pretty much wide open compared to what we're dealing with out here. So what does that mean? You know, if, if your car goes down or if everybody's car goes down or you have something like an EMP uh, where the electrical grid goes down, this place is going to be zombie mania. We've got 13 million people west of us here that have not thought, again, 20 minutes ahead of time as opposed to 20 days ahead of time. And, uh, you know, a roving horde of, of 13 million is not a fun thing. I don't care how fast you are. <laughs> you are not going to survive that. So it's, it's important to just think about what's going on and how do we how do we prepare ourselves for that? So thanks for that. Hey, you've got some courses coming up here. So I want to make sure we talk about that. Now, a lot of the higher end trainers don't come to California, but you actually have had a few classes down in San Diego. I think some of those are sold out. Sarah's California up by Fresno. You have some classes coming on. And then locally to California, you have some in Vegas and you have some in, in Prescott and in Phoenix. So folks, March uh, 14th, I think you still have some openings for your carbine course in Vegas. And so to go to fieldcraftsurvival.com, 
fieldcraftsurvival.com and check that out, um, which would be nice to actually bring a carbine to free America and not have to shoot it with a fin and um, everything else or the bullet button or all the other crud we have to put up with here in the People's Republic of Occupied California. So if you take your carbine out there, just make sure you have it correctly configured before you come back across state lines. But uh, Sarah's California. Now, how often have you been up there, Mike? Well, I, I, I mean, I started Phil Craft Survival in California. I started it in a place uh, in Amador County, a small town called Ione, California. Uh, I know it. Right on the Right there with the, the, uh, the airport in there. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, beautiful place, beautiful location. Um, I even had an office where I would keep my guns in Zephyr Cove on the border of California because I didn't want to get in trouble. Uh, even though I was teaching law enforcement all over the state of California as a post-certified instructor. Now I, we do train all over the Cal- all over the state of California. And even though a lot of people and a lot of companies, including industry, um, firearm manufacturers, have shunned California, I think it only hurts the people. And and I don't agree with uh, gun manufacturers saying they're not going to sell guns to Californians or even law enforcement officers in some cases uh, completely against that. Because I think um, we need to offer solutions. And uh, no matter the politics, uh, we can keep politics aside. There is a training opportunity um, and people need to be educated. Um, so we, we train all over California from San Francisco uh, all the way down to San Diego. I have 20 uh, contracted uh, employees on the tactical side, law enforcement officers, SWAT officers, military guys that train all over the United States, including California. And we teach about three to four tactical training courses in three to four different states across America every single weekend. That's awesome. So folks, you can go to fieldcraftsurvival.com, fieldcraftsurvival.com. I think uh, you've got some classes, the 27th, 28th up there in Sarah's right by Fresno in California, then um, in Prescott on the 27th, 28th also, if you want to go to Arizona. And then again, in April, you have your close, uh, your CCP and your close quarters battle testing or training, I should say, out there. So again, fieldcraftsurvival.com. This is Philip Naiman, Firing Line Radio Show. We'll be right back after this. Have questions about handgun safety, local sports shooting events, or your Second Amendment rights? Just ask Vince at Bullseye Sport in Riverside. Get practical advice. No sales pitch. Vince is a straight shooter when it comes to sharing his advice and years of gun experience. Whether you're a seasoned gun owner or a newcomer, at Bullseye Sport, they welcome everyone, especially ladies considering a firearm for the first time. When they go to our store, we want to give them something that they're going to feel comfortable with. And if you're looking to purchase a gun, ammo, or accessories... If we don't have it, we will get it for you. For all the answers to your rifle and handgun questions, just ask Vince at Bullseye Sport. 951-823-0211. Bullseye Sport in Riverside. Proud sponsor of the Firing Line Gun Show, Saturdays at 1 p.m. on AM 590. Follow Bullseye Sport on Facebook for your inventory updates or call 951-823-0211. AM 590, the answer. This portion of the firing line is brought to you by CCW Safe by Philip Naiman and Cornerstone Christian Wealth Management. Spartans, lay down your weapons! Persians, come and get them! 
Hey folks, welcome back to Firing Line Radio Show. Philip Naiman, Mulan Labe Saturday. Check us out at FiringLineRadio.com. Get your podcast there. There's only about eight and a half years worth of them, so you should be able to figure out how that works by now. Um, joining me back here, I have Mike Glover. Mike Glover, uh, Fieldcraft Survival. And if you heard the first two segments, um, good for you. If not, make sure you pick up the podcast on that because the guy's got an excellent resume and, and great information. Um, Mike, one of the things we have so many new pistol buyers or new firearm buyers in general. So, you know, you probably hear this a lot, but uh, somebody might come up to you and say, hey, uh, I'm thinking about buying a gun. What should I get? So what's your typical discussion with that? Yeah, I, I um, so have a, a little bit different approach on on choosing the best firearm for you because I, I, think, I, I think there is a an idea that there are guns out there that are very good for concealed carry that could be common to all and, and just a good option. I recommend I'm a fan of Glock cause I use Glock in the military, but I also serviced. I mean, I've been to all the armor schools for all the major manufacturers. And so I've seen the deficiency in many weapon systems that are sold um, with, with all various forms of it. The single action only Glock pistol is one of the best, most reliable pistols in the world. There's so a reason it- special operations. So, acquired that are you saying it's like in the 1970s or 80s there was this you're probably too young for you for this but there was a commercial about the maytag repairman was the loneliest guy in the world so the glock armor is the same thing he never never gets any business you put your your sign up out front says i repair glocks and you got you got no business coming through is that what you're saying yeah exactly right i mean that's the perfect way to put it because you know i like when i joined the army um, we were using M9 Berettas, and I, I could tell you from experience, um, even in special operations, when we had M9s, it's one of the most highly um, broken guns, maintained guns and maintenance um, guns in the inventory. Um, with a locking block, there's a, there's a huge flaw in it. And so when we went to Glock 19s, Glock 22s, um, we, all those problems went away. Now they're not the most accurate pistols out of the box. Like there's, there is reasons why 1911s, um, especially in the earlier days, were preferred by um, professional shooters, performance IPSC type shooters. It's because they were very accurate. But the Glock 19 specifically, I would select for somebody who was trying to get into concealed carry because of the simplicity of of the action the durability and reliability, but also the form factor size. I mean, a Glock 19, uh, I would consider it a a compact framed pistol, um, which means it's appropriate for full-size hands. That would be, you know, really good on a Glock 17 or Glock 22 that has the same size frame, but also good for somebody who has smaller hands. Uh, I've seen the, um, the, the argument to a subcompact is it's too small. Because if, you, if you're somebody like me who has a big hand and then you try to hold a, uh, even a Glock 43, it's very small in my hand, which could cause problems. I've actually seen guys on the range during concealed carry courses carry subcompacts because they want to have the most concealable pistol available, yet they're having, having and inducing malfunctions on the range because their hands are overwhelming the gun's action and cycle of operation. And there's, so, e- there's even the comfort level. 
Yeah, there's even the comfort of like a, a Glock 26, you know, or 29. That 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 half handle, I I just don't like it. I'd rather carry the 19. Yeah, you're you're exactly. I don't purposely even when issued with that in GRS, I didn't carry that because I want to have a firm grip when I acquire it out of a draw stroke from wherever it's at, um, and not having my bottom pinky. Um, not on the gun or having to increase the mag size, which defeats the purpose of right. in that frame of having a compact in the first place, you might yeah. as well have a 19, then th- that's problematic. So yeah. Glock 19 would be the solution for, for 90% of people that I, I would talk to. Yeah, I think Glock would agree. Yeah. Two, two fingers are for T, right? Not for guns. So yeah, for sure. Yeah. So Glock 19, you know, uh, out here, they, we can still get them. We're stuck on gen threes. Um, because of the laws in California, the micro stamping that uh, Kamala Harris and Arnold Schwarzenegger gave us, um, we haven't had a new gun since 2012, uh, new semi-automatic, I should say, because of the fire. So the Gen 4, Gen 5s, we don't have any access to those. We're still stuck on Gen 3. And actually, the ones in, that we can have in California aren't made in the U.S. They have to be imported from Austria. So that that's just the craziness we're dealing with here. You know... I wanted to talk to you about this. You're talking about preparedness and you're talking about getting involved and and mindset. You folks there in Utah had better understand what happened in California, meaning that a small minority of people got into power and destroyed this state. And those people now are, they're leaving. It's like that scene from Pirates of the Caribbean where, uh, the pirate comes in on a ship that's sinking, and just as he hits the dock, his ship's underwater, and now he's on new ground again. That, those are the, the bad Californians leaving California and landing in your state. And your preparedness, you need to take a look at you guys, people with common mindset, need to get involved in your local politics and stay involved and watch what's happening, not allow what has happened in California to replicate because there's a lot of people leaving. I do financial planning and investments. That's my business. I mean, I, you probably thought I was just a big radio host here, but not true. Anyway. So 80% of the people we're talking with are planning on leaving this state. And so that's a warning. That's, that's the shot across Utah's bow, Arizona. Well, Arizona's already purple state, Utah's bow, Wyoming, Nevada. You know, these are, these are people that are coming over and you had better get involved in your local politics and stay involved in there and not allow the cancer to spread. So that's my, my mindset preparedness for you guys is keep your heads up and don't let don't let them get a beachhead. Don't let them turn Salt Lake City into a, a you know a high density area that's going to vote the wrong way because that can turn the entire state just like Denver and Boulder turned Colorado. Anyway, that's my soapbox for today. So let's let's go. Let's get back to something fun. I mean, or, or are you even seeing that right now in Utah? No, I mean it's 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 prevalent everywhere, right? The one of the com- pounding issues is what you said, which is the population stacked on top of each other. Because when you're stacked on top of each other, the government needs to be more involved with supporting the populace and the infrastructure that is the system, which becomes a, a very political or apolitical in this case thing. And then, you know, it displaces rural people who want a, more liberty, more freedom. And so it, it's less likely to happen here because of the lack of of large population centers, but Salt Lake Center or Salt Lake City is a big 
mm-hmm. populous center. Uh, we don't fill that up here in Heber City, uh, even though there's a lot of uh, people from California that are here in Austin Park City. A lot of my best friends up here from California, and they believe in freedom. A, a lot of my employees are from California, and they believe in freedom. That's why they displaced themselves from California. Yeah, right. I mean, that's what we're seeing. But there's the people who want to go there and don't want to change things. And then there are those who are going there to change things. That's all. Hey, um, okay, so yeah, let's just bring bring us up again on another note here. One of the things I noticed that you're really into, and we'll talk about this in our last segment mostly, but the mobility factor. Now, it seems that you've really taken that to a whole new level. Now, I've had uh, Bernard Leitner, Leitner Designs on the show. Um, great guy. He's come up with a lot of great dis- uh, designs for, for mobility and uh, wandering, basically, is what you want to call it out there. So tell us a little bit about what you've set up for your mobility and how's that working? Yeah, I, you know, mobility is a term that we use the military and special operations specifically for, you know, moving troops. Um, in my case, a lot of the time for operations and reconnaissance. But, you know, when you take a vehicle and you chop it up and you mount guns to it and you prepare it for war, you're doing so to self-sustain yourself over uh, distance and time. And the convenience of the correlation between mobility and what people do every single day recreationally um, is the fact that people want to displace themselves from urban centers and populations because they want a feeling of being off grid. They want to, you know, pop their camper, get away from people, go experience the outdoors. And so there's a hybrid blend there. And, And the blend is if you have a vehicle and you're building it out for that camp, for that off grid experience, then you need to be thinking about potentially bugging out from a bad circumstance into a better one. Um, there is bugging in that, that's there's, we teach bugging and bugging in as well, but when it comes to mobility, you need to have some capability. I mean, I, like, I don't think you need a 50, hundred thousand dollar rig to be relevant or to be prepared in this space. Good. Hey, um, we're, we're going to jump to a commercial right here. I'm going to pick it up with that thought folks, Philip Naiman, firing line radio show, fieldcraftsurvival.com. Mike Glover will be right back after this. Hi, folks. Philip Naiman from Firing Line Radio Show. If you're a concealed handgun carrier or have a firearm to defend your home and are forced to use your weapon for self-defense or the protection of a loved one, you'll be glad to have CCW Safe on your side. CCW Safe provides and pays 100% upfront defense funds for high-quality attorneys, expert witnesses, and the investigators you need following a critical incident with no reimbursement. And they do it all for one flat yearly fee starting at $179 a year. CCW Safe has permit and non-permit plans to protect California residents in this state and while traveling across the country. So check out their new ultimate plan with no caps on criminal and civil defense, $1 million for bond coverage, a dedicated million dollars for civil liability, and many other benefits. You defend your life. CCW Safe will defend your freedom and financial future. In California, CCW Safe has got you covered. So join now at CCWSafe.com. AM590, the answer. This portion of the firing line is brought to you by Vortex Optics. Vortex, the force of optics. Conan, what is best in life? To crush your enemies, see them driven before you? 
They had a lamentation of the women. That is good. Hey, folks, welcome back to Firing Line Radio Show. Check us out at FiringLineRadio.com for the podcast. We are making a move over to Gab.com and just haven't quite figured out all of our new technologies. And Anyway, we're getting off of Facebook basically because they're pushing us off. Uh, they've been throttling the heck out of us, and we just want to make a move and stay relevant and stay accessible for you guys out there. But you can always get the podcast at FiringLineRadio.com. Subscribe. They're free. And one of the things you're going to learn is great stuff from people like Mike Glover over at Fieldcraft Survival, FieldcraftSurvival.com. Check out some of the training they have going on there from Central California to Vegas to Prescott to Phoenix. Everything from CCW to close quarter battle to wilderness survival. And, you know, we just were talking about mobility and vehicles and what's involved with that. And I'm going to turn it over to Mike here for the last segment here. Talk about uh, what I'd like to do to talk about, Mike, is a little bit of more on mobility and then the survival skills, wilderness survival skills that you've learned and how you teach those to John Q. Public. Yeah, the, the mobility just you know, um, piggybacking off our last conversation. Um, I remember driving to Afghanistan in like a, a very tricked out, uh, land Rover and, you know, thinking we had everything squared away and we built it out for some of the most extreme off-road conditions in the world and seeing a Toyota Corolla, you know, drive past us. That, that was an Afghan taxi cab <laughs> and, and thinking to myself like, wow, you know, in, in parts of the world, people just live and just do what they have to do. So you could have a Honda Civic, you could have whatever you have, but there's ways that you can improve your situation. One of them, one of them that I'll just leave you with a, with a pro tip on it is just fuel. I mean, you're, you're only as good as the fuel source that you have in your vehicle or your rig. If you have a quarter tank of gas in your rig right now, that's your capability. So store fuel at home, store fuel, uh, in your vehicle on rotopacks, um, do some kind of fuel storage because even a storm here in Utah, like we've had several storms here that will shut down electricity. Most of the pumps, uh, right. even the, even the manual systems run off electricity that allows them to pump out of, um, the tank that's buried in the ground. So you're going to need reservation for fuel um, whether it's contingency, you're breaking down or extending your range, um, or the worst case scenario, I think it's it's a good practice. How often do you cycle through that fuel? I mean, do you? Store- uh, I do so. Often. I, do, I do so often. So if I I, I typically run jerry cans, um, they're not the best from um, from experience, especially up and down in elevation. They will degrade over time. Rota, we're dealers for Rota. We recommend Rota packs. Um, but I cycle through them often. So what I'll do is if I'm going on a, a trip, um, e- even outside of the, the town that I'm in for a couple hours and I pull over to get gas, I'll start by recycling the gas out of the can into my fuel tank and then replenishing it with the fuel that I essentially it's an extension of my, my gas tank. And I often replace that, especially when I do something extended. Now, um, do you, do you do you put an extra uh, internal tank on your truck? I have I have um, several on several vehicles that we have for the company and in my personal. Um, you know, we use a long range America's seventy five gallon tank um, in my in my diesel Titan fuel tanks. They have a thirty gallon tank that goes right underneath your spare tire. 
um, placement in your pickup truck. But I mean, 30 gallons on board, even 75 gallons on board, that's a huge extension of just extending your capability. I mean, if you live in rural America, like Laramie, Wyoming, they already know this because they go hundreds of miles in some cases without a gas station. So just, just think outside the box a little on that and then, you know, have the ability to extend your range. Yeah, it's super important. You know, I've got, uh, I've got a Tacoma and I think like 250 is about all the miles you're going to get out of that tank. And that is just not enough, especially if you're doing four wheel driving and, and uh, not getting 20 miles a gallon. It's just, you're short. So that's, that's a good tip on there. Okay. How about uh, your wilderness survival skills? Did you grow up in California? Is that what you'd said earlier? Or your training? Oh, I was born in California. Uh, actually, at Fort Ord, where my dad was stationed, and then that's nice grew country. Up most of my life in uh, in uh, North Carolina. Okay. Um, but for for you know we primitive outdoor rural survival skills. Um, look, I'm not an expert at it. My I hire the experts. Kevin Estello, who's one of my guys who wrote 101 skills you need to survive in the woods, which is one of my favorite books that I've ever read on modern survival. That's primitive. Um, he's our primary instructor for all things survival. I went to survival school. I went to high risk CRC. It's called where pilots and special operations guys go. Um, I also went to a, a whole, like every seer school that you can go to. I went to um, restraint, defeat, covert comms, the list goes on. But one of the most important schools that changed the way I looked at primitive survival is uh, a course for uh, CIA personnel. And I learned about sustaining yourself for 72 hours in the worst case scenario. Primarily, um, the basic necessities of survival don't change. But the idea should be not just having that survival kit in your rucksack, in your house, or even in your car, but what things can you put on your person that are going to facilitate survival? So I carry a, a big lighter, for example, in my everyday carry. I don't smoke, but I have a fire contingency that allows me to survive because I could keep my body core temperature warm. Um, I could also signal day and night with a fire. Um, but also, um, I think about shelter. I think about how am I going to protect myself from the elements? And that has to do a lot with what you wear every single day. This whole idea that cotton kills um, is true but we often wear cotton because it's comfortable. So you don't have to be uncomfortable. You just have to think about what you would have on your person in your rig or at your home. That's going to sustain that survivability. And I would say lastly, um, something that a lot of people don't think about that's tied to primitive survival is the ability to stop your bleed uh, in the event that you potentially are injured. I mean, you go hiking in the middle of the woods and you trip and fall and you start bleeding um, if it's femoral, brachial, arterial, you could be in a bad circumstance without a tourniquet on your person. Um, even though that's not seen as often a part of primitive survival, to me it is because um, you're, you're often, because of the lack of food, lack of water, the stress, and the outdoor conditions, more likely to get injured. And it's been proven in case studies. So, so definitely carry a tourniquet on you. You know, a lot of the guys... Uh... I've seen a couple of cases, I should say, not a lot of guys, you know, backcountry hunting. And, you know, they get one of these scalpel knives or something like that, and they drop it and it goes through their foot or their calf or, you know, they cut a finger as they're, as they're dealing with a, cleaning out an elk. 
Yeah, that's a major issue. So that, that's a heck of a good point is just thinking about stopping the bleed. And the tourniquets themselves, I mean, they're not that expensive and they don't weigh very much to throw into a kit, right? Yeah, that's absolutely right. I mean, 400 hunters a year fall out of tree stands and get injured every year, which is funny to me. But um, <laughs> that those guys are falling out of tree stands, you know, you got to ask yourself, like, what's their level of preparedness and bringing the right equipment to treat even a sprung ankle? Because a sprung ankle in austere remote environments with a an ice storm could lead to compounding circumstances that leads a lot of the times to, to people's getting uh, injured or even killed outdoors. Well, that's absolutely true. Um, sometimes we're our own our own uh, worst enemies when it comes to stuff like that. Just going in over your head, you know, going into a backcountry not prepared physically. Yeah, I did nine years on a search and rescue team out here, and you know we saw a lot of silliness. There's people going out with shorts in November and climbing eleven thousand foot mountains and wondering why they're freezing. You know, just again, when you grow up in the inner city or not inner city, but you grow up in Southern California, we do not have radical weather that often, and people get very complacent. And when you get complacent at over ten thousand feet, you may have to pay the bill. So that that, that just does happen. Ice. We get ice up here, man. People start sliding down canyons like crazy. They look like pachanga balls when they hit the bottom. Anyway, that's what we got going on out here. Folks, I want to thank my special guest, Mike Glover. Mike, we got one minute left here. I know you have some courses coming up here. Do you have one on wilderness survival coming up? Yeah, actually, we have one coming up this weekend in Hebrew City. Um, that one's sold basics. out, yeah. Survival course, yeah. And, and we, we run those periodically. We, we run them on the East Coast. We run them on the West coast and in Hebrew everywhere in between, but people can go to fieldcraftsurvival.com. And I recommend if they don't follow Kevin Estella to follow him. Uh, he's, he's who I look to for all things, survival, primitive survival and outdoor survival. And um, I mean, I carry his book, uh, 101 um, skills you need to survive in the woods uh, in our store, but also online at fieldcraftsurvival.com. Very good. Folks, thank you for, to my special guest, Mike Glover, fieldcraftsurvival.com. His hot tip here, 101 skills, get it off his website, fieldcraftsurvival.com. Mike, thank you for your time. Thank you for your service. Thanks for just in, in uh, being an American and, and sharing these skills with us. God bless. Thank you. Shoot, Felipe. Shoot. When you have to shoot, shoot. Don't talk. The Firing Line Radio Show has been brought to you by Bullseye Sports in Riverside, CCW Safe, Cutting Edge Bullets, Vortex Optics, Vortex, the force of optics, and by Philip Naiman and Cornerstone Christian Wealth Management. AM 590, the answer.